Another Sunday where we're not going to sing because I'm afraid that I'm, I'm having a bit of a cold, so I don't want to have to sing to you at this voice like this. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we, being reborn to new life in him, may live in righteousness and holiness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, just a quick bit about uh, Holy Week. Um, Holy Week, uh, for many of you, will be very new and different, and uh, so uh, I want to say a few things about that before we get going. Uh, the first is that, um, yeah, it's new and different and weird, and uh, you should expect it to be because <laughs> uh, we, we really pull out all the stops for Holy Week. This is like, it's the biggest week of the year, and uh, one thing I do say to people is, you know, if you ever... If you ever come across something in a Holy Week liturgy, it's like, I don't know how I feel about that. That's a little strange. Well, fine. Just watch. <laughs> Nobody has to do anything. You'll be okay. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I do want to encourage you to, to jump into it and, uh, and participate fully. Um, I know uh, when I grew up, I grew up in a very typical American family that happened to be Episcopalian or Anglican. And, uh, and we didn't really do much with Holy Week. And it was only when I had friends in the church that were like, well, you can't miss Maundy Thursday. Like, that's a big deal that we started to go. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, you know, one of the things I, I find is that, um, uh, you know, I always kind of feel sorry for people to just show up on Easter Sunday having not walked through this whole week of liturgies. Because here's something to keep in mind. The Easter Sunday liturgy, which is just a normal Sunday, is out of place without all of these other things. Um, it's the culmination of a lot that came before. So anyway, mark off your calendar, Monday, Thursday at 6 p.m. Uh, certainly, uh, you want to catch uh, the showing of Rublev uh, at the Hippodrome on Monday night. It's a really wonderful uh, uh, film. Uh, on Good Friday, we'll have the Good Friday Liturgy at noon. We'll have Jesus of the Cross at 3. And then there's a new thing we're adding in, which is Meditations on the Seven Last Words of Jesus from the Cross, which will be at 2 p.m. on Good Friday. The Holy Saturday Liturgy, which is one of the most austere liturgies of the entire church year next to Good Friday, will be on uh, Holy Saturday, this coming Saturday, at, I believe it's 10.30. Um, and, uh, and I have always been blown away by the attendance of Christ Church at that liturgy. A normal parish might have, like, the altar guild show up. We have 75, 80 people showing up just to hear an ancient sermon uh, from, the, from the ancient church, which is one of my favorites, uh, and, and just to think on... Christ in the tomb, and to prepare for, uh, for Easter. Um, we kick off Easter early, which is to say we start off at 10.30 on Saturday night with the Easter Vigil. Now, the Easter Vigil is a service of, it has two parts, really. There's this uh, vigil of readings where we read nine readings from the Old Testament that lead up to the resurrection, uh, and then um, we, we, uh, we light a new fire outside the church, and it's just an amazing thing. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people come back for Easter Sunday. But if you go to the Easter Vigil, you know, there's not really any reason for that. You've pretty much done it. <laughs> but a lot of people say, no, I want to come back. So that's, that's okay, too. Uh, knock yourself out. The one thing I would encourage you to do is uh, we keep vigil before the sacrament on Thursday night uh, in, in memory of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
uh, and one-hour stretches through the night. Uh, and so you're welcome to come here and, uh, and take an hour time slot in the chapel. And if you don't know where the chapel is, it's behind all of this. Uh, go back as far as you can to the back corner over there, and that's where the chapel is. Um, and so that's kept through the night in one-hour stretches. You know, Jesus says, could you not watch with me for one hour? Well, we say, okay, an hour I can do. And some people choose to sleep a little bit, then wake up in the middle of the night and show up at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. Um, you can sign up for that through the church email. You just sign up for the vigil watch of Gethsemane, and, uh, and I wanna encourage you to do that. I think we have the whole night covered already through that electronic sign-up. Um, so, there we are. We're going to continue on with the Ten Commandments. We're going on, we're going to wrap up um, uh, the, uh, this section on, um, on murder, which is the Sixth Commandment, um, and we'll start with question 307. Uh, you're, you'll remember that, uh, that the commandment is, you shall not murder, um, as some translations, but you shall do no murder. And murder is the taking of, of a human life unjustly, without authority, without, um, without uh, 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 any, any ability to do so, um, and with, uh, with malice in the heart. Um, it also includes harming your neighbor in word and deed. Um, so we're going to ask this question, uh, 307, about is it always wrong to harm or kill another? So I'm going to ask it. Is it always wrong to harm or kill another? There are rare times when the claims of justice, mercy, and life itself may require doing harm or even bringing death to others. It is the particular task of government to do this in society. Um, this is an important thing. I think um, there's, there's all too often uh, today a kind of lack of clarity with regard to moral questions. Um, and, and ethicists can help us with this, but also just basic Christian thought can help us with this, which is... Um, you know, to, to defend life, it's very often needed um, to take the life of another. Um, now, in that case, what is it? Is it murder? No, it's not. <laughs> um, uh, and, and our law actually has this written in. I mean, if you, if you, uh, if you fire a gun in self-defense in the state of Texas, are you going to see jail time? Probably not, actually. And the reason is simple. It's not murder. Um, it's self-defense. Um, if, you, if you fire a weapon or you, you kill someone to defend another, um, still in our law, is that murder? No, it's not. Um, now, having said that, there are those who hold to an ethic that says it's never okay to do that. And I completely understand that. And I think uh, you're perfectly at ease to, to have that position that you would never act violently, um, even in that case. Um, but I can also tell you that, uh, that that's where another moral question comes in, which is, did you uh, allow that someone's life was taken unjustly uh, because of your lack of action or what could, could potentially be a sin of omission? So this is an important uh, question for everyone to kind of sit with for a bit um, because we have, to, we have to look at this. Um, it's also the case that um, a soldier or someone with that authority uh, to do that and acting under orders, um, carrying out their orders, um, is not committing murder if they happen to use lethal force. 
um, we, the Christian tradition would never call that murder. It doesn't fit that category because uh, they've been given that authority to do so and they've been put under orders to do so. Um, now, go ahead. No, 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 no. We're not talking about that at all. Ah, yes. Well, so this is a really, this is another part of uh, this whole thing, and we can get into it a little bit. There's an entire tradition within Christian teaching, uh, which is the just war tradition. And I think that's, David Corey at Baylor puts it, just war tradition. And I, that's exactly right. Um, there's no such thing in the church as a just war theory. Um, there are lots of theories that talk about just war, but there's actually a tradition of thought here. Um, and one of, one of the big questions is, what defines a just war? You know, how do, we, how do we think about what might be a just cause? Not only, not only prior to a war, but within the war and after the war. Um, and all of this is to say, pick up David Corey's book, it's magnificent, and actually fairly accessible, uh, so, which is surprising given that. But I would say um, uh, that's a really tough question. Um, but normally, normally, a soldier acting under orders against enemy combatants is not, uh, is not considered to be guilty of murder. Now, however, a soldier might go off, off the rails um, and, and, and without orders do all manner of things, and that could be murder. And of course, the army has rules for this too, right? If you fire without an order, what happens? Straight to the brig, right? You're gonna, there's gonna be a court-martial, and there should be, right? So this is all very important to have in mind. Um, now, you might look at all that and you might say, ugh, I don't like that at all. Well, there's a wonderful pacifist tradition within the church and you're welcome to adopt it, but understand, it has moral problems too. And everybody's got to wrestle with that. Um, so just keep all that in mind. I, I think what, what we often see is the moral pacifists are sort of above the fray, right, of this moral question. And I don't think there's any reason for that, actually. Everybody's got to wrestle with this question. Um, uh, so, so keep all that in mind. Okay. Any questions left there? Keep in mind that, that uh, the, the, the just use of, of lethal force is, is almost always accompanied by a governmental um, decree or authority of some manner. Um, indeed, that's one of the requirements for a just war is that you have the authority given to you to fight it. <laughs> um, you can't just sort of say, a general can't even go out and just say, well, we're going to go uh, knock down this door and do this. That, that uh, falls apart. I would actually say this is a really important, um, a really important problem. And uh, people ask me, what, what wars in the last century do you think were just? <laughs> and I'll say, well, first of all, I think I'm unqualified to answer that. Although I can say there are absolutely actions against civilians in the last century that are absolutely unjust, absolutely unjust. Um, and I think we should say so. We shouldn't hesitate to say so. Um, uh, I, I think I will just tell you that the use of... Uh, uh, nuclear weapons and hydrogen bombs against civilians is just pure evil, and we should have never done it. Just leave it at that. Now you might say, but it, but it ended the war. <laughs> well, the ends don't justify the means in Christian thought, ever. Um, and I don't think they can in, in, in any thought, but there it is. Um, so there's, and I just, I wish we could go on at length about this, but there's a whole tradition of this. You can look it up. Uh, Saint, from St. Augustine on, there are, there are uh, qualifiers about what makes for just action in war. And uh, it's, it's fascinating reading, and I think you'd benefit from it, so, so go for it. You can actually look it up. Um, how else can you cause life to flourish? 
As a witness to the gospel, I can love God and my neighbor by refraining from selfish anger, insults, and cursing, by defending the helpless and unborn, by rescuing those who damage themselves, and by helping others to prosper. I love this answer. As a witness to the gospel. Um, Christian witness has, in every age, required that Christians uh, love God and their neighbor uh, by living in a way that, that uh, stands um, in witness to a culture that's often marked by the exaltation of death. Now, we live in just such a culture today. Uh, death is the exalted thing. Um, and, and you say, oh, no, that couldn't be true. L- listen, like, by every objective standard you can throw at it, uh, you know, the abortion rate in this country is still completely out of control. Um, we see, um, we see um, one, one million abortions a year Uh, 1.1, 1.2, depending on the year, just in this country alone. Um, Worldwide, that number goes to 20 to 30 million. Um, We have uh, have a society and a culture where uh, murders are rampant in our cities. Um, I used to live in Stockton, California, and it was was considered normal to have a year in a city of 100,000 people where 120 murders took place in a year. 100,000 people. And, And why? Because life is devalued, because we live in a, in a culture marked by nihilism, uh, where nothing matters, and especially the life of my neighbor, and so if I'm angry, I strike out in anger. Um, if I've got to settle a score, I go do it. Um, and gang warfare is a part of this, but it's, it even goes beyond that. Um, so, it's just to say, uh, uh, we, live in this, we live in this culture where, where um, uh, we are convinced that in order for us to have the good life, um, others have to die. So, and I've, I'm really actually thankful that a lot, of recent, a lot of recent films seem to be deeply struggling with this. Like, how can you justify um, the taking of innocent life um, in any way? Um, so, this is, a, this is a big question. I think we Christians have to really uh, wrestle with it, but... I love the positive answer here. It's not only to refrain from selfish anger, insults, and cursing, which is, seriously, I'll, I'll just say this. As soon as you start to insult your neighbor and curse your neighbor, the door is open to murder. It's wide open. Because in essence, you've said in your, in your mind and in your heart, life would be better if, if this neighbor of mine did not exist. My life would be better. So you've already made that determination. It's just a matter of are you going to carry it out or not? Um, but I love this, by defending the helpless and unborn. Um, Christians have always been those who have defended the helpless and the unborn, always. Um, the Christian tradition has always rejected abortion, um, but even beyond that has always uh, stood up uh, to infanticide. I spoke last week about how the Romans had, would have in their cities uh, walls where babies could be exposed to the elements and left to die. Um, and where, uh, where the church flourished, those walls went silent because Christians were just going to the walls and adopting babies as soon as they showed up. They turned, that, they turned those, uh, those places of death um, almost into like places of adoption and life. And do you see how what this means is that the gospel is being made manifest in that culture of death? Um, the helpless. Christians were those who... Uh, did not leave town when your family got the bubonic plague. You might say, yeah, well, doesn't that stand to reason? Not back then it didn't. 
Uh, most people were like, head for the hills, the plague is here. And they would see on their neighbor, oh my goodness, gonic plague, and they'd just leave. Um, but Christians stayed, and often they died because of it. But very often they lived. Um, and, and Christians received a reputation, a very well-earned reputation uh, for being those who cared for the helpless. Um, it's an incredible witness as well um, when Christians rise to the help of especially the disabled, uh, uh, um, paraplegics, um, all manner of people who are uh, in, in, um, in seemingly incurable diseases. Um, and so this is just a wonderful witness. Um, especially today when there are increasing calls uh, for euthanasia to be brought about as an acceptable moral alternative. Um, and I think Christians should, should always and should never hesitate to say uh, that this is a great evil, that um, to remove the helpless from our society simply because they don't contribute just shows us um, how, how, uh, how, how unvirtuous we become as a society that we don't even want to be bothered with the helpless. Um, and I would also say, think of, the moral, think of the burden that puts on people who sit in this position, right? Think about it, as you get older and, you, and you're sitting in the hospital bed and you're of no use to anyone, not on paper anyway. Um, and euthanasia is a real option? Are you not gonna think about it? I'm telling you, you will, you'll have to. And there will be family members, your own children someday, calling for, you know, Mom, it'd be a lot easier if you just took this pill. And it'll be painless. You'll slip into a sleep and that'll be it. But I think we, we have to recognize that there's value in human life straight up to the end because every human being is an object of love. And, uh, and, and uh, we all know this, right? I, mean, I think we intuitively know this, that Every human being is an object of love. Every human being deserves love um, because they bear forth the image of God and sometimes that's distressing. And sometimes that requires us to be selfless. In fact, all the time it requires us to be selfless. But all the more reason. Um, so Christians will always look upon those who suffer the most and who are the most helpless as, the, as, as some of the greatest opportunities we have uh, to self-donation and charity. So, important thing to keep in mind. Um, and, uh, and, and I want to encourage you to that, actually. Um, uh, I remember uh, for years um, in, in California, there was a 90-year-old member of our congregation who had been basically in a vegetative state for three years. And her husband would visit her every day. He'd sit with her uh, in, this, in this room where nobody came much. But I went and saw her every week and it changed my life because I came to recognize that uh, the value of human life is not in what I can do. The value in human life is what I show the world um, about who God is. So that's a, that's a, that's a big thing, right? <laughs> it's, 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 our, our modernist world has gotten so down to the wire that we just say, unless there's bottom line benefit to this human being being alive, well, why keep him around? It doesn't make sense. Um, so, the bottom line for Christians is this. You were made in the image of God. So there it is. That's all you have to know. All right. Um, to also rescue those who damage themselves uh, and by helping others to prosper. Um, so, one of, the, one of the great things that uh, Christians have been able to do through the centuries is to exercise their wealth 
such as it is, right? And all of you, I'd say, have wealth in some way. And you might say, yeah, I got 100 bucks in my checking account. That's wealth, okay? That's, you got something. Um, and the question is, how are you going to mobilize it? And what are you going to do with it um, to help others flourish? And it might be as simple as you've got some friends who are really suffering, and you can put spaghetti on the table with no meat, and you can invite your friends over for dinner. Huge. It's a huge act of love, huge act of hospitality. You know, Jesus basically says, if you get somebody so much as a drink of water, you've not lost your reward in offering that kind of hospitality. Um, so there's always something you can do, always something you can do. Um, but here's the deal. As your wealth goes up, what also goes up? Your responsibility. So, so it just goes up and up and up. Um, and I would just say that, uh, that uh, everybody can look and see how the generosity of others has deeply impacted their life and has made a huge difference. Um, and, and I want to encourage you that um, no matter what you have, um, no matter what God has put in your hands, um, uh, carrying out this commandment in a positive way, and in fact what will heal our cursing and our anger towards our neighbor is generosity. Um, so if you ever come to confession, you're like, I'm just so angry <laughs> at so-and-so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something about you need, you need to try to consciously do good to others. Just pick somebody um, that, you can, that you can be generous to. All right, should we move on? We'll try to do the seventh commandment in like 15 minutes, or maybe 10 minutes. No, it's not gonna happen. Uh, but we do need to wrap up a little early, so I'm gonna wrap up at, at right at 10.10. What is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. What does it mean not to commit adultery? Marriage is holy. Married persons are to be faithful to their spouses as long as they both shall live. So I must not engage in sexual activity with anyone other than my spouse. Okay, adultery, strictly speaking, to just give it an, uh, uh, a definition for it, is um, sexual unfaithfulness and unchastity that, that departs from the bond of marriage. So, uh, there, there, is a, there is a sin that's tightly tied to adultery called fornication, which is what comes before marriage. But it's, adultery specifically regards marriage. Now, of course, just like all the commandments, it gets vastly expanded, right, in the application. But at the core is that married persons are to be faithful to their spouses as long as they both shall live. Um, and this is, of course, unqualified, right? It's to say, well, but what about if he does this? Nope. What if, what if she does this? Oh, um, as, as long as they both shall live. Um, the understanding in Scripture is this, that marriage is a holy institution. Marriage shows us, and I think this is so important, marriage shows us the gospel. Um, Paul says in Ephesians, let's actually look this up. Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking about the church, but he says a lot about marriage. Um, so at the end of chapter 5, he says, this mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here he says, um, for no man, let's talk about why, uh, why husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He says, no man ever hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. 
So marriage actually shows us the gospel, which is that the, the bridegroom of all creation cares for his bride, the church, to the point of shedding his blood. Do you see that, in, in a sense, the most, one of the most perfect um, images we have of marriage is when a man loves his wife like that. Have you ever watched um, a husband whose wife is terminally ill? Have you ever seen that? It's one of the most beautiful things you can see in human life, actually. Um, because usually what you've got is you've got a situation where she has cared for him day in and day out, and he's done what he can, right? But, but he, you know, he's a man, so like he's, he struggles through this. This is a hard thing. But at the end, um, it's an amazing thing. Have you ever watched a man whose wife has Alzheimer's, for instance, um, really give himself down to the point where he's exhausted and tired, um, where, where uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a pressure of mine, and, and he was just, he was so exhausted from caring for his wife with Alzheimer's. He felt so miserable that he had to ultimately um, say, I can't do everything for her, and, and, and she had to be in a facility for this. And, and he felt awful because he was going on a vacation for two weeks, and he wasn't going to see her, and he was going to miss her. And he felt like he was neglecting her. And I, and I said, my, my brother, you know, you've done so much. Um, and you gotta, you got to take a break here <laughs> and let others, let others pick up the slack for you. And that's what ultimately happened. Um, but, but you just saw this man who was a tough old Navy captain pour out his life for his wife. Um, this is an image of the gospel. Um, and so it's, it's an incredibly holy thing. Um, it's not just simply a function within society or, hey, marriage is the best possible thing we've got. No, and it's not even like marriage is just very convenient. Let me tell you, marriage is not convenient. Anyone who's been married knows that. Uh, uh, marriage is tough. Um, but let's ask this. Why does God ordain marriage? God ordains marriage for three important purposes. For the procreation of children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, and for mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. These are taken directly from the marriage rite in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, if you've ever been to an Anglican wedding, you know that that's how we start off. And uh, the last wedding we had, or actually the last and first wedding we had here, uh, people commented after the wedding, it was so uh, solemn, you know, it wasn't this kind of like, eh, it was just a solemn wedding, and I said, yes, that's exactly right, <laughs> um, because, because it's a solemn deal, man, and, and, uh, and, and, it, and we take it very seriously. Now, there was joy, too, of course, uh, but, but these admonitions in the beginning are stern, um, and, and these three purposes or three goods of marriage are outlined, and these are very ancient. Um, they date back to at least Augustine who lays them out very strongly. But the first is the procreation of children. Um, the purpose of marriage is for the furtherance of families, for the furtherance of, of human life in procreation. Um, now, I know that sounds very old-fashioned, right? But listen, it's as simple as this. God has ordained it that when two people have sex, sometimes babies are born, okay? Like, I know that's revolutionary and really tough to hear, and I know that we've, like, got technology all ramped up so that we can have sex without babies and babies without sex, but, like, listen, this is how God has ordained it. Um, and that this takes place, or should take place, within the context of marriage. This should not surprise anybody 
And yet, I think there's this kind of general desire in our culture to say, well, but that could certainly be avoided, couldn't it? Not if, not if, not, not in nature, that's for darn sure. I mean, we see that the end of human life in this way and in this, um, in, in, in sexual embrace is, is to do this. In fact, that's why we say when something doesn't go right in that regard, that there's something wrong. Yes? It's not a value judgment, not to say like you're a sinner if it doesn't work out. It's just to say like, there's something wrong, there's something not right. Um, I remember years ago, I, I officiated the wedding of an older couple <laughs> and she came to me and she said, I've been reviewing the bulletin. And there are prayers for the procreation of children in here and <laughs> you know I can't do that, right? And I said, well, you don't know that. <laughs> but I also said to her, listen, marriage is procreative whether you can or not because marriage always shows forth the gospel and always brings about new life. Um, and, and I think we, the, this happy couple, they stopped off in Waco recently and, and they just were, they, she mentioned that. She said how, how thankful she was that from day one in their wedding, they were told, no, your marriage is not about you being happy. Your marriage is about procreation as a, as a first good. And even if you're beyond those years, you can still emulate this good in, in incredible ways. Um, and that's been the truth for them. So isn't that, and that, that's a wonderful thing. Um, but I always ask a couple when they're in for pre-marriage counseling, I always say, so you ready to have kids? And sometimes they'll look at me like, what? We didn't realize that was something that you were going to say yes. Like, <laughs> um, and ideally, you should start right away. And I know that there are reasons why people say, well, we need to hold off for a little while. We need to delay. We need to think about this. We need to be thoughtful. And it's like, yes, okay, fine. Uh, but, but I still think, I'm old-fashioned, but I still think the ideal is get married and start up, you know? Um, uh, throw yourself into it because, uh, well, for one thing, you know, uh, there's actually research that shows that people have, who, who, have, who get pregnant in the first year of marriage, their marriages just last much longer. Um, well, why is that? Because you have an immediate reminder of what the purpose of your marriage is right away, and that's that it's not about your happiness. Those goods come later, and we'll talk about them, okay? So, second good is a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. Well, it's not just a remedy against sexual sin, although it is primarily that. What is it? Okay, I will just say this. Because I've been married for 14 years, I think I'm generally, morally a bit better than I was 14 years ago. I think I've been sanctified by marriage in certain ways, right? I'm not as grumpy as I used to be. I'm not as, I'm not as selfish as I used to be. Like, a lot of things have changed, big time. Because I have a wife who's not afraid to speak truth to me, who's also not afraid to tell me, get off your butt and do the dishes, because I'm not doing them, not while I've got all this other stuff to do. you see the point? And I think we all have to come to terms with this, um, as men in particular. Like, you know, it's as simple as this. Like, your wife's not psychotic, and your wife's not crazy, and she's not mean. So when she speaks to you, listen, because you're either going to write her off as crazy, or you're going to or you're going to listen to her, right? And so this is an important thing, and I just you know, lay it out for you. So if you're, if you're about to be married, you think you might want to be married, you're a man, like, get that straight, right? There's no, no sense in diddling around it and saying, well, oh, but maybe it's not that way. Maybe she's just, maybe she's just dumb and she doesn't know what she's talking about. No. Like, <laughs> that's not a good starting point because, because listen, it's either, it's either that she's smart and she's speaking truth to you or you got another problem that's worse. Um, so lay that out. Okay. Um, the wonderful thing about marriage in, in general in this second way is that um, it, it guards us from 
uh, from the, the, the manifold problems of, uh, of sexual sin in particular, but all manner of other sins in general, right? Because, look, first problem identified in creation by God is what? Yeah, it is not good for man to be alone, right? Therefore, I shall make him a helper. <laughs> um, and, they, and they help each other. The third thing, for mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. Um, so first off, it's mutual. That means that marriage cannot become one-sided. It can't be that she does everything and he does nothing. It can't be that he does everything and she does nothing. Um, each party brings into the marriage something very good, um, and they are thereby aided by this. Um, I was reminded of this yesterday as I sat at the kitchen table doing, doing our taxes, and Ella came up and she made me a cup of tea and she's like, thank you so much for doing this. This is why you can't die. <laughs> and I said, well, I appreciate that very much <laughs> because I'm good with the taxes. She's good at making a cup of tea. You know, it all works, right? Um, and so this is, it's an important thing. Um, help and comfort, and this is important, both in prosperity and in adversity. We don't get married so the good times will in some way be augmented because they will be. But we get married so that, uh, so that the times of adversity will also be, uh, we'll, have, we'll have someone with us in that, in that regard. Now, I do want to say in, in addition to this that the church has a wonderful tradition of speaking the value of lifelong celibacy, um, uh, but very rarely will speak the value of lifelong celibacy in, a, in living alone, apart from others. And that's why uh, lifelong celibates are encouraged to live in community. So that these, uh, how should I put it, marriage-like benefits uh, can be obtained within the community. Is that helpful? Okay. Um, this is why if you, if you live in a Benedictine monastery, you have lay brothers uh, or, or just people who do things like dishes, um, who cook meals. And it's a wonderful thing, and that, that work is shared, and the, communi the community flourishes because of this. Okay. Um, what does marriage illustrate? The New Testament reveals that human marriage is meant to reflect the faithful love that unites Christ to his church. We've already mentioned this, so I'm, I'm not really going to do it again. Um, but this faithful love, I mean, note this. Jesus doesn't sort of just say, well, my church is really being a pain in my side these days, so eh, I don't love them so much today. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, the church is often, you know, well, God's people have often been described as, as an unfaithful wife. <laughs> but, but a wife she is nonetheless. Um, so this is an important thing. And, it, and it's why I say to people, you know, when they're going through issues of infidelity, which happens more often than you'd think, um, you know, the infidelity itself doesn't change the married state. I think a lot of people today like to think it, like to think it, it could, like to think that it might be able to, um, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, it continues on. Some of the most amazing witnesses to Christ that I've known in my life have been people who have been utterly abandoned by their spouses. And yet they've said, but I'm going to be faithful. I met a woman a few years ago whose, whose husband, because she struggled with infertility, he was just done. And he wound up leaving her, marrying someone else, forcing a divorce, and she was talking about her marriage. 
living in this oddly single state. And she just said, marriage is a sacrament, I still draw grace from it. What an amazing witness, right? Um, now, is that always gonna happen? Well, no, we know that, because human life is marked by sin, and, and things don't always go the way you hope they will. But, but what an amazing witness to have that in place. So, is divorce ever permitted? Let me, oh, let's, let's actually ask this next question. What does it mean to be faithful in marriage? To be faithful in marriage is to be exclusively devoted in heart, mind, and body to one's spouse in the, covenant, in the marriage covenant. Um, so marriage faithfulness doesn't just simply require physical uh, uh, faithfulness. It requires one's whole self um, to be engaged in lifelong faithfulness. Now, what do we call this if we really get down to it? We call it chastity. And it's not just for the married, it's for everyone. Chastity is a gift for everyone. Now, I know that sounds like a terribly old-fashioned word to even say, uh, but chastity is an important virtue for Christians and for everyone, really. Do you know why? You gotta read John Paul II on all this because he, he just nails it over and over and over again. The reason we have to have chastity is so that we can have friendship. Because as the ancients say, you can have everything in life, but if you don't have friends, so what? And I will tell you this too, it's really, it's, it's not necessary to have a marriage built on friendship, right? I mean, lots of people are married and they hate each other's guts and they're still married and they're still faithful, right? And what a wonderful witness. <laughs> but, but and bad marriages can be as much a witness to the gospel as anybody else, right? I'll just say that clearly. Um, but it's really wonderful when you build a marriage on the solid foundation of friendship. And in order for friendship to take, chastity has to be in place. Do you know why? Because chastity trains us to be people who ask not what's in it for me, but how can I give to you selflessly. Um, and this is why John Paul calls chastity a, um, an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Because if we, can't ma if we can't master our passions, if we can't master our, our lusts and our desires, um, we can't be good friends. And I, I have to tell you that one of the most disastrous things that hap that's happened in our society today, and, and we will, uh, Alex, I'm gonna throw you under the bus on this one. You get to pick up with the divorce next, in two weeks. Uh, Alex is gonna take over on the 28th while I'm, while I'm away. Um, but one of the most disastrous things that our society has faced with the complete collapse of any understanding of marriage, um, it, that's not the tragedy in my view. The tragedy, in my view, is the complete collapse of friendship. Because friendship is marked by, by, by self-donation. And when, and this is part of the problem, right? When we think, in order to actually have good friends, uh, sex and marriage have to be on the table among friends, this destroys friendship. Um, when we think, as a society, uh, that that two men being very close friends, there's gotta be something fishy about that because we're obsessed with sex, right? Um, uh, you know, we forget that 100 years ago, grown men would hold hands walking down the street. In fact, in many cultures today, that still happens. You go to the Philippines, it's like incredibly, men are like incredibly affectionate with each other. There's nothing sexual about it at all. They're friends, 
We've lost this. Um, and in fact, because we're so arrogant, we actually impose our sexual ethic upon, recent, upon societies before and say, well, obviously there's something sexual going on when we read the letters between men. Because we can't read it any other way. We don't think we can, and we should. Um, so, so be mindful of that, right? A society without friendship is a disaster. Why is it a disaster? Because you'll think that every good you have in life is for you. Um, it, it's just for you. And even marriage is a good just for you. Um, and one of the most disturbing, one of the most disturbing trends in marriage is that people now think that marriage is about self-fulfillment. And listen, we've kind of inverted Maslow's hierarchy, right? So, so now instead of, instead of you know, self-fulfillment and meaning being at the top of the pyramid, we put it at the bottom and said, well, you know, you should have that first, right? That's really important. Um, and one of the problems we've had is because that's the only good to be attained in marriage. All the other material goods that you obtain through marriage are like meaningless, essentially. Which, let me tell you, marriage can be the basis for uh, the financial stability of the family. It's the, it's the basis for all manner of things and has been throughout our history. Um, and as marriage starts to fail, listen, it's like the most, this is the most clear thing, right? If you want to have a successful life, I'm just gonna tell you, don't get divorced if you're married. Because that's one of the main things that will lead to the complete financial collapse of you and your family and your children. Above even like graduating from college, graduating from high school, all the rest, right? For your children to have parents who are married is one of the greatest gifts you can give them. It's the greatest gift you can give them, actually. Um, so, Keep all that in mind. It's, and it's not to say, if you're, if, you're, if you're the child of divorce, I pity you and blah, blah, blah. It's just to say, like, this is an incredibly important thing. Um, uh, so, you got, you got one? Go ahead. I'm sorry, I can't hear. I'm sorry, I still can't hear you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So I'm sure Alex can handle this next week. Um, but, but let me just say that uh, very often people wind up in unwanted divorces. Very often. Happens a lot. Um, it's, it's a very horrible thing, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. However, one of the decisions that people have to make is, how, how then am I going to live, and what am I going to think about all this? And I'm simply suggesting that one of the options, in fact, a really good option, is to consider yourself still bound. And I know that's hard. And I know that's like crazy to even say today. But I can just tell you of the absolute heroism of friends of mine who are in that very position. And who've said, my wife hates me, or my husband hates me, has completely abandoned me, and yet I choose this. Um, and, and a lot of it is just because they say, because that's the gospel. Is that when we are unfaithful, God and, and God in Christ continually gives himself to his church. So that's all I'd say. Now, sometimes people have to sign on the dotted line because it's all they can do to have peace. And listen, I will say this too. There's a reason the church doesn't grant divorces. 
There's a reason that still in civil society, people get married in churches, sometimes, I wish more often, uh, and divorces are registered with a judge. We don't do it. Why don't we do it? It's, it's, it's not our arena, okay? Um, so I will just say this. Whatever you might be able to obtain from a judge for tax purposes to sever a union and turn your marriage into a financial transaction, it does not affect what happened. And that's why I would say rather firmly, um, the only thing, the only thing that can be done, perhaps to release you, is to say that, that there was something deficient in those marriage vows, such that we can say a marriage never really happened. But that's it, I think. Um, now, that's, that's always up for tons and tons of biblical debate, and I would love to engage with you on that. Send me an email May 1st, right? <laughs> because that's when I'll have the time to have a substantive talk over email. Um, but, but listen, at the end of the day, Jesus is very clear. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Now, is that to say that marriage doesn't get put asunder? Well, I think that would be a very Pollyanna view of it, um, and not really true, because we do do this. Like, divorces do get decreed. Um, what I think we should say is something about what the moral obligation of spouses is to each other, especially as things break down. Are you, are you with me there so far, right? Um, what, kind of, what kind of things that we should commit ourselves to uh, for, uh, for the purposes of sanctity, for the purposes of, of, um, of living a, an integrated life before God, a life of holiness, um, and I would say that um, sometimes that seems to be the least happy option. Okay, I'm fine with that. We have a church that's defined by martyrdom, so okay, fine, right? Like, <laughs> that's okay. And sometimes marriage requires that you just lay down your life for someone who hates you. Okay, fine. Um, I will tell you this also, pastorally, sometimes I just plain know Somebody's in my office, they're getting divorced, there's nothing that can be done about it. All my, my job is now to figure out how to pick up the pieces. That's all I can do. And I can offer encouragement and, and help, um, but that's all I can do. Um, but sometimes things can be saved. God is, God is, let me just say this. God loves married people so much. He loves us all, but he loves marriage. And when things break down and two people say, we gotta do something about this and we gotta accept his grace in this regard and we gotta pray for each other and for this to be rescued, what happens? Absolute positive miracles. Miracles. Um, I've had couples in my office who are on the verge of divorce and worse. And, and their commitment to figuring it out and sorting through it and their commitment to Christ is what will save it but pride and arrogance go nowhere. So there it is. Uh, I, would, I would rather people commit themselves to holiness and see things be salvaged because, uh, because they can be. Um, God's grace is bigger and stronger than marriage breakdowns. So there it is. Hope that helps. If you have, uh, if you have a kind of nasty gram you want to send me, hold off. Like, I will answer it May 1st. <laughs> I know this can often be like a very controversial subject, but I hope I, I, hope I handle it with grace and love and charity. Um, but I also want to, I want, to, I want to be very clear about marriage, um, especially from this venue, um, because as, as, our, as many churches, their teaching on marriage starts to break down, um, it's a disaster for our society. It's a disaster for our culture, and, and it's a disaster for Christian witness. So 
There you have it. Thank you. Uh, we're going to meet outside on the empty lot for the Liturgy of Palms here in about six minutes, seven minutes. <laughs>